Welcome to Movable Dough, the podcast where I interview and promote living composers. Join me as I talk with composers about their current projects, their past successes and setbacks, and their personal journeys. For more information about this podcast, please visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Chris Fraley. Though hailing from the Pacific Northwestern United States, Chris currently resides in the beautiful islands of Hawaii. His compositions have been premiered by the Bird Ensemble, Cascadian Chorale, Radiance, Master Chorus Eastside, and the Pittsburgh Civic Orchestra. He continues to write for chorus, chamber ensembles, and orchestra. Chris also works as a music typesetter and professional concert recorder and editor. Chris Fraley, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's start today with something unmusical related. So I saw that you are a four-time science and engineering fair finalist with projects ranging from mathematics to natural language processing computers. So I know you quit your day job to pursue composition full-time in 2001. So did your previous work deal with science and math? I uh, worked at Microsoft for nine years. Uh, so I programmer uh, by training and uh, avocation, I guess, as well. I grew up in an engineering, a mixed engineering and music family. My, my mother was a music director at church, sang some opera, taught voice lessons, piano lessons. I tried taking piano lessons, but that does not work, you know, <laughs> taking piano lessons from your parents. But um, I did later pursue cello. So I always had this kind of duality between music on one hand. And then my father was trained as a physicist, partly because he was interested in computers and the electrical engineering side of things. And at that point in time, they didn't actually have, they hadn't split that out into a completely separate discipline, or at least not at all the different universities. So he pursued physics as a means, or, or well, I'm, he loved physics as well, but also pursued it as a means to uh, learn circuit, about circuits uh, and sure, then yeah. went on to work for Bell Labs uh, in, in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, uh, which is where I grew up. Uh, and in uh, on the East Coast, and then transplanted out to the Pacific Northwest to work for Microsoft way back in 1989, when the place was much smaller and much oh, less imagine. built up. Uh, lived out in the country, and by the time I moved, I was in the middle of uh, not quite the city, but pretty much, you know, the the whole urban sprawl uh, reached reached me way out in Woodinville. Uh, so it's uh, kind of interesting, you know, living there for 30 years and seeing seeing everything sprawl. But um, getting back to my uh, my background, so I've always had this uh, passion for how do things work, uh, and that's continues to be a passion even with respect to music. Yeah, and I know you have interest in in counterpoint and form and and things like that. Sort of how music is put together. Yeah. Uh, so do you think you're your background in science and math sort of drives that interest? Absolutely. Uh, or another way to say that would be that they both come from a common wellspring. Mm -hmm. That, you know, there's that innate interest of how things work. And then, I mean, heck, at Microsoft, up and down um, the hallway where I worked, there was uh, an ex-professional trumpet player who got really tired of playing the Nutcracker 25 times 
you know, with the, I think he worked with the Boston Ballet. And so he discovered computers and, and hence worked at Microsoft and he loved it because he could then pick and choose what gigs he wanted to play. Um, there was, uh, uh, ex, uh, not an ex composer, I guess he probably still writes. Um, but uh, one of my friends at Microsoft discovered computers at Stanford when he was pursuing his, I think, masters in composition. He discovered uh, computers and ended up going off to work for uh, jobs at, um, uh, what was it, Next Computing, uh, before, before it became, before he came back to Apple and, and continued at Apple. So up and down, I, there is a lot, I, I have personally seen a lot of people that have a foot in both worlds. And, there, and I think that goes back to there's something innate that is common to both music and to engineering uh, or, or math, or, you know, there's a way of seeing the world that, that works in both fields. So when you were working for Microsoft, were you doing any music, uh, research? Were you doing programming, dealing with voice recognition? No. So that, that was an interesting uh, period of my life, which, so I joined Microsoft right out of college. So in college, I did continue, uh, kind of a dual, I, I almost have a minor in music from Carnegie Mellon, but I was really there for engineering, for programming. And, and as you can imagine, the engineering programming aspects of going to college were enough to put me on a schedule where, you know, oftentimes you're getting four hours of sleep a night, you know, there's just not a lot of time to pursue much more than your, your degree, but I did take uh, some composition lessons, private composition lessons from a, a teacher there. Uh, I also, you know, took the standard harmony 101 and 102 classes, et cetera, uh, music history. Uh, so, and I did pursue as part of my programming, I had a summer job one summer working, working for a professor who did a lot with the uh, programming related to music. So in that, scenario, I was doing some, some things that are actually extremely common now, where we were doing Fourier transforms of recordings of music. And essentially, what we do is take an oboe, analyze a recording of an oboe, as it got louder, how the timbre change, as it got softer, as as it maybe was uh, uh, lift up or lift down. I don't know if that's the woodwind terminology, but the equivalent of that in, in, in woodwinds and built basically a database of here's how the spectrum changes as you go through these. And, and because we didn't have the computing power at the time, essentially you'd take the recording of an attack of, of, of the very beginning of a note where it has a distinct, uh, well, we all know what bassoon sounds like. And a lot of that comes from that initial attack of, mm -hmm. of the honk of the bassoon. Uh, and, then, and then transition immediately over into a purely synthesized uh, um, tail where then you could naturally grow and, and shrink. But of course we couldn't do any of this in real time. It was all done, you know, here, here's what I have in my head. Let's see how it sounds. And then, uh -huh. you know, a couple minutes later you get to see, okay, did that work? <laughs> and, and finding actually an ability to convert digital audio to analog where you can actually hear it back then was unheard of. I mean, PCs did not have sound cards. Right. Um, the next 
the next workstation, uh, what, that was one we had actually in, in the lab, in the music lab at Carnegie Mellon. And, and that was like neat because, hey, you could actually like produce digital audio and then play it out and actually hear what it sounds like. And of course, nowadays, all of that is completely trivial, which is really cool and exciting because there's now so much stuff we can do that we just couldn't, we could only dream about you know, mm -hmm. 30, 40 years ago. And I guess I'm now aging myself, <laughs> but it's been an exciting time, you know, to see this progression. And even now what we could do at the year 2000, I mean, my, my cell phone now is probably more powerful than the computers I was using at the turn of, you know, of the century. And that pace is just exciting because now we can actually synthesize. You've probably heard of things like piano tech, uh, artificial piano completely synthesized out of emulating the physics behind a piano. And the advantage of that is you get all those weird interactions that at first blush, you may not notice. So the, the old sample libraries, they call them sample libraries because they record every single note on the piano and then you play them all pianissimo and then piano. And then that's, you know, all, all the different dynamics you get from piano and then you play back the different recordings. Well, that doesn't capture that when you're holding down a note and you're playing the note next to it, it causes some transfer of energy between the two notes, uh, particularly if those notes are harmonically related. Uh, you have all the subtle things with the notes don't sound the same every time you play them. They all sound different because the string's slightly different than the, the you know, hammer doesn't go back to the exact same spot it was before or all those things. And when you're modeling the physics, all that comes for free. And mm -hmm. so then you end up with an instrument that to my ears just sounds a lot more alive and expressive and interesting. And now you're starting to see the same thing happen for um, the strings, which are arguably the hardest to emulate um, and the brass and the woodwind. So now you actually can play these synthetic instruments that sound like real instruments, but give you a lot more of the expressivity. The next thing, of course, we need to solve is how you can play them live and right. you know the mechanics of okay midi keyboard it's just not a great mechanism for 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 reproducing a performance because it's really hard to get that expressivity yeah. uh, through through there and of course i spend most of my day in a music notation program so it's even harder when you're just dealing with notes on a page and trying to reproduce what you're hearing in your head you know you can spend it way too much time when it be way easier to actually and more exciting to actually hand it to performers and say, "Hey, let's let's see what this sounds like." <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's see if we can get the sound like what's in my head. Yeah. All right. So, Chris, I wanted to ask you, what opportunity led you to Hawaii? The opportunity uh, to enjoy sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've lived thirty years in the Pacific Northwest, um, ten years with Microsoft got married in 2001 and brought my bride back here. She was from Pittsburgh. There's kind of a little story there. I worked for my brother for a couple of years in Pittsburgh, but knowing the housing market in the Northwest, I didn't want to sell the house. And so I kind of did the bi-coastal thing for a while. Moved back here and, you know, I thoroughly enjoy the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I think there are several different factors I already alluded to, one of them at least, um, but, 30 years of nine month winners <laughs> um, really took a, a toll, uh, you know, on both of us. Uh, my wife was only there for, 
for you know about 20 of those years. And we we just kind of realized that we're getting to an age where we'd want to relocate somewhere else in the United States. And we've been coming to Hawaii for years on, on vacation. And and essentially what ended up happening is uh, our plan was to investigate several nooks and crannies of the United States, uh, including back east where my, my family's from. And uh, essentially, we uh, started house hunting and and accidentally came across like the perfect house in Hawaii on vacation one day, and we ended up, you know, I I, I got on the phone with my uh, parents and my brother and said, what would you think if I moved to Hawaii? And they gave me their their blessing and and you know literally Monday morning I was calling the accountant saying, okay, can can I actually do this or not? <laughs> and 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 so then we uh, spent the next year you know, orchestrating a move. So um, it's, it, it really is a blessing to, to be able to be here. Um, and there are a lot of musicians here too. You know, there are a lot of people that have retired, um, move here. Um, there are a lot of uh, really great, I mean, there's a great culture of, of guitar here. Uh, so you have a lot of, uh, uh, I'm just, I'm a neophyte. I'm, I'm learning what's, what, what, what's going on here. And of course there's a local, um, um, you know, community choir and, and um, bands and orchestras as well. So there is a lot of uh, art happening here, which is kind of nice too. Yeah. So let me let, let me turn to some of your musical life. Uh, so I, you mentioned you played cello, and I know later mm -hmm. you switched to guitar. Uh, so what sort of music were you playing or listening to when you were growing up? <laughs> uh, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd. Uh, some classic uh, rock, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I grew up on a lot of classic rock. Uh, some of it influenced by my brother. My, I had an older brother, brother three years older than I, uh, and so you know he and his friends would have all of their music, and I would, you know, absorb a lot of that indirectly. Although I had a lot different tastes, but he he exposed me to, you know, U two and a whole bunch of other classic rock. Um, on the on the cello is is interesting. I, I studied cello through end of high school, and um, still kept up with the cello through at least a, a little bit, at least on on breaks and stuff during during uh, college. And starting career at Microsoft, I was just way too busy, so the cello just kind of sat in a sat in a corner, and and I I uh, picked it up for for a while as an adult more like in the 2015 time frame then we moved and that's all kind of uh, monkey wrench in there uh so um you know the the cello playing uh definitely influenced me i think more later uh you know growing up uh playing the cello i loved playing the cello but at that point in time i didn't really enjoy listening to orchestral music didn't really li enjoy listening to uh i think i didn't know about chamber music Really, uh, I mean, we played some in high school, but I didn't understand what it was in, in any real, real form. And so it wasn't until I went off to college and um, the first music history early broke through um, early classical, where I finally got exposed to hearing, um, being forced to listen to some of this music, and really grew to absolutely love that music. And I, I discovered Bach. And Bach was a really great thing to listen to while programming, you know, so when you're bored and, and sitting there typing on the keyboard, 
all this rote stuff that you have to do in order to get stuff done. My brain could be relaxing listening to Bach while while I'm just sitting there typing. And then yeah. when I needed to engage, I could stop listening to Bach and concentrate on what I needed to and, and switch back and forth. And 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 that I think was really the beginning of my love of classical music. I, I before then I really didn't just it was something there, but as a kid, you know, you don't appreciate a lot of the stuff you get exposed to. Um, and then later when I started seriously studying composition, that's when I was really thrilled that I grew up playing the cello because I had an innate feel for how to write for strings. Uh, whereas a lot of that is a kind of a difficult thing to learn if you're not, you know, that's one of the reasons why, um, I think a lot of music schools require you to learn multiple instruments because then you have a much better understanding of what's actually going on when you're, when, when you're dealing with the instruments. Um, yeah. You have some level of familiarity with it. So what led you to composition? What got you to that point? I had always been writing music. Uh, even from, I, I remember one incident where I entered a music composition contest, I think in second grade. Wow. You know, so, so uh, you know, of course, my mom being a piano teacher, you know, sat on the piano bench and I, I forget exactly how it worked, but I played something and my mom helped me notate it. Well, I'm sure she really notated it for me. Uh, and when I picked a guitar, I mean, that was really great for me musically. I, I started writing music, you know, that's what you do when you pick up guitar. And oh, yeah. so I wrote hundreds of songs and, and I have no idea what happened to most of them. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're out there somewhere. And, and so I just never seriously pursued it until, um, I'd been working at Microsoft for a couple of years and, and, you know, switching to a new career, you know, right out of school, you know, you're pouring all your energy, uh, and particularly at a place like Microsoft, you know, there's always the joke that, you know, if you, if you're, um, uh, if keeping your head up above water, that just means you didn't have enough work. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you weren't being challenged enough. And so, so it was a really challenging time, at least to, um, till you get your bearings and everything. And so my first probably three or four years at Microsoft, I didn't have time to pursue, um, any music at all. And then I, I distinctly remember, in fact, it's an interesting story how I met my composition mentor, uh, the, the, uh, gentleman in who taught me how to compose. Uh, so I finally gotten to the point where I'm like, I've been away from music way too long and I really have an innate need to express myself musically. And so at that point in time, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to get a MIDI keyboard, plug it into my computer, and then I can use Finale, which did exist at that point in time, uh, and start writing music. And so, being the engineer I am, of course, I researched all the MIDI keyboards, show up in the basement of uh, American Music and checking out what they have there. And this older gentleman walks up to me and he starts asking me a question about this keyboard. And I did my research, so I'm answering his questions. And, well, what about this one? And, and et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, so how much does this one cost? And I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> he thought I was a salesperson. And it's like, well, if you're not a salesperson, you know, what are you doing here? And I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I explained to him, I wanted to buy a MIDI keyboard, plug it up so I could uh, plug it in so I could uh, compose music and kind of gives me this really odd expression. It's like, I'm a composition teacher. Um, and, and he, 
he'd um, taught composition for for years all over the country. And so I ended up, uh, I had a, I went to some of my music friends at Microsoft who, who came from the music world and I said, is this guy legit? You know, so they did some asking around. He's like, yeah, he's legit. He, he graduated from blah, blah, blah and everything. And so I, I studied with him and, and um, you know, it's very much a, a God thing. I think he, the way we crossed paths and, and at that point in my life where I really needed him and, um, you know, that changed my life, uh, that, that, that little chance meeting in the basement of a music store. And he taught me classical music composition. So, you know, up to that point, I'd been really focusing more on pop music because I play guitar. I, you know, could write that. I enjoyed, enjoyed writing that. Um, but in college, I had to develop this love for, for um, classical music, particularly Comp, um, counterpoint and and things and then he kind of helped me marry all those different loves together and and you know six, six years later you know i i i was writing some really good music and, and that's kind of the beginning of my you know classical music composition career sure well, speaking of your loves i know you also love to tell stories in fact the, <laughs> the title of your cd that you produced with the bird ensemble is called stories so my question for you is, what are your favorite types of stories to tell through music? There's always something in the music that in the music that I really love. There's always something that grabs you, in in one way or another. Uh, sometimes it's an intellectual or a, a fun thing, like the lyrics from "They Might Be Giants" is full of just these little plays on words and things that. Five years later, you finally understand what they were referencing to because you came yeah. across it in real life. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. You know, they're one of my favorite bands. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's that kind of engagement. There's uh, the kind of engagement that just brings you joy. Like, uh, you know, one of the the uh, 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 regrets too strong of a word, but you know, one of one of the bands I would have loved to have gone to a concert, especially having read about it later is a Cars concert because the description I heard is everyone's dancing. You know, you go to the concert and it's like this big, um, uh, Ray is probably not the right word because I've never been to Ray, but I don't really know what they are. But, you know, everyone, it's a big party. Everyone's dancing to this great music and, and uh, singable music. And so there's uh, um, a kind of music that, that brings that kind of joy to you. Uh, there's the kind of music that just, um, is really engaging um, in in uh, other ways, like like uh, the music that like rubs in a particular way and then resolves, and you just feel that's so satisfying. That's one of the things that I love about Counterpoint is the give and take, the 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 setting up and then foiling your expectations and then resolving that in a way that you you hadn't thought of. Of course, harmonically that happens all the time as well. So um, there's also that aspect of it. And then in choral music, and one of the reasons why I've just uh, fallen in love with writing choral music is then, you, of course, you have words. So it's the marrying of words with these other abstract feelings um, that, that really, I mean, that's, that's the reason why, why I love that. So when I come, when I'm reading poetry and I come across a poem or something like that, that just uh, grabs me in some, some way or another, 
and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that more later. Uh, you know, that's that becomes the starting point. You know, whether it's an image, uh, some imagery from the the poem, whether it's just the feeling of the poem, the the emotional feeling, or uh, or depending, you know, what what that emotion is, and trying to then uh, recreate what I'm feeling in music so that um, the audience can uh, um, can feel with me uh, what I was feeling, you know, that joy or that um, peacefulness or that excitement. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to, to do is like, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm feeling these feelings. I write some music, hopefully that embodies that and helps um, uh, communicate those feelings so that other, other people can, can listen and participate in that and becomes a, uh, um, something we all do together. And that's one of the things I love about listening to like choral music. You know, you go to a choral music concert and uh, in a good concert, there's always at least one or two pieces that are just like, oh, that just, you know, that made my week, you know, uh, and and uh, same thing with singing choral music. You know, there's also the that side of things, too, which is a surprisingly popular thing to do. I mean, even here in 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 Kona, where, you know, the population of Kona is, I think, 10,000 people or something like 12,000 people. Uh, but yet the Kona Choral Society, you know, we have 120 people in the choir. Wow. Uh, and and so, uh, of course, it is a local tradition of singing. So that's very helpful. Um, but it also shows that it goes to show how powerful of an experience it is to be in a group singing. And and that that is not just an elitist thing. That That is something that we all enjoy doing, whether it's sitting around a campfire you know, singing singing songs, you know, as a group there or in, in a more slightly more formal setting in a, in a choral group is a really healthy thing that um, is very fulfilling. All right. Well, after a quick break, we'll have a chance to dive into some of Chris's compositions. Welcome back. My guest today is Chris Fraley. All right. So you have several pieces in your catalog that you list as tone poems. So when you're writing a piece like this, are you trying to tell the story pretty literally from beginning to end? Are you capturing ideas from the story to represent? You know, are you using character motifs? What are you What are you doing to build a piece like this? I like to mix it up. Uh, I I have used all the techniques that you you just mentioned. And in, in the case of Iris Call, that was a a commission. Um, part of commissioning program with the Seattle Composers Alliance, uh, where they uh, paired composers with various schools in the area. And so I got paired with the uh, Foss High School, um, which is in your neck of the woods, I believe, um, uh, down in Tacoma and uh, with their orchestra. And so I, I you know, wanted to write a piece for them. Um, and so I was looking at a theme that was uh, accessible and, and interesting and started working on some music and i'm not sure exactly how i ended up tying the music to uh to the story and but it did happen probably after i'd gotten about a third of the the music written you know you're working you're, you're sketching out stuff and have ideas and whatnot and, and i'm literally liking this feel but i i felt it was missing something and and then I came across the story of uh you know St. Patrick and bringing Christianity well not not 
not actually focusing on bringing Christianity so much to to Ireland as as the whole story of of you know him being kidnapped and you know becoming a slave in Ireland and then but falling in love with Ireland and you know just kind of all the back and forth and I felt like kind of the the end of that story kind of ex expresses the joy where he later in his life after he became a Christian you know had a love for the Irish people in spite of their persecution he experienced there and actually voluntarily went to Ireland to to bring the gospel. And of course, we all know uh, what happens in the aftermath of that, you know. The, um, so that was kind of an, a situation where it's kind of marrying the, the uh, joyful feeling um, and and then some of the episodes within that tone poem express various scenes from the storyline. and. For some audiences, it's a lot easier to follow classical music, particularly if you don't have a lot of experience and exposure listening to classical music. It can be a little daunting at first. And so having a storyline you can kind of follow along with and engage with, I think is very helpful. And so there are lots of different reasons in, in the case of Fire's Call to, to have the storyline and how it ties in uh, with, with the music as well. So I was drawn to Iris Call because of the Irish influence. Uh, I'm drawn mm -hmm. to all things Irish because of my Irish ancestry. Uh, so let's take a moment here and we'll listen to uh, a section of Irish Call written in 2003. next to one of your choral works, The Plains. This is part of a choral cycle titled India's Love Lyrics and is part of the Project Encore collection of choral music. So one thing I really enjoyed about your website, Chris, is how much detail you include about each piece. It's fantastic. So I wanted I like to ask it. though about the lyrics to this piece. So the piece uh, is based on a poem by Adela Florence Nicholson, but you mentioned that you changed the lyrics quite a bit for this piece, for The Plains. So what did you change and why did you feel you needed to change them? So in this particular piece, uh, and usually I include the exact changes uh, on, my, on the website, 
and I guess in this case, I did not. So I will probably have to go out and fix that because uh, <laughs> um, I, I like being precise in those sorts of things. Um, so the, the piece of plans uses, uh, and I love this uh, um, uh, poet that, you know, is not a well-known poet. She, she, she was an English woman who married uh, an English uh, gentleman who was stationed in India. And so she moved to India with him and she wrote under the name um, uh, Lawrence Hope uh, poetry. And, and published several books of, of poetry as a English, uh, well, we know as an English woman uh, experiencing this other culture. And I really enjoy a lot of her imagery. And, and that's one of the things that drew me into the plains is she's ex drawing these pictures of you know, the flat horizon that goes in all, all directions and it's not broken up by much of anything and kind of ties that then into, uses that imagery to tie that into the metaphysical of, you know, we all have that experience of wanting to be there. In this case, you know, somewhere else that I can see really far on the horizon and, and, and kind of the metaphorical, you know, there's um, philosophical themes that she, she brings in through this image that, that, that I really like. And so, that's what I was trying to express through the through the uh, music here. So the changes I made to the planes were all about reinforcing my my take on 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 what she was getting at in in her poem. So a lot of it was uh, more minor editing, uh, and I believe in this case more than anything else. Uh, a couple of her other poems, I I. I as I said, I've fallen in love with her poetry. And so I've uh, set a lot of her poems to, to music. And um, a lot of times I'm just ex ex excerpting things because um, there's too much uh, volume um, and, and it helps from being distilled into uh, an essence. Uh, so in this case, uh, a lot of what I was doing is, is delaying the final resolution until the very, very end um, so that it could be, um, you know, uh, makes it that very satisfying uh, yeah. uh, ending ending to a piece. So um, so I probably didn't do a whole lot of editing, uh, but yes, I, I would uh, uh, like to get that up on the website so, so that uh, people can see exactly what I did and, and it becomes pretty clear why I made the changes I did. Um, so I know with this uh, choral cycle, um, all of the movements are in pentatonic scales. So is there a reason you chose to use that as your connecting device between them? So it would be more, ac more accurate to say that I use pentatonic chords. Um, and I actually do go into that on one of the pages on the website uh, where uh, basically building a chord out of the pentatonic scale, but you're playing all the notes of, of the of, of the pentatonic scale at once, and then you're switching to essentially a different pentatonic scale as the chordal progressions uh, evolve. And um, that kind of just started off as a sound experiment, uh, and I found 
as I think we oftentimes do as composers, uh, you know, an interesting sound world here that we explore by ear uh, and, and the emotions that we feel and can express. And also, it, uh, you know, I, I tend to take things further. So, you know, I, I started diving into, you know, some of the uh, um, theory behind that in the sense of, I'm, you know, analyzing, well, why, why does it work this way? What's going on? And one of the things that becomes really obvious if you take any sort of deep look at this is if you're one chord, you know, so for in the key of C, C, E, G, um, sorry, <laughs> uh, C, D, E, G, A becomes the chord I use as the tonic chord. And then if you go up to um, the five chord, you'd be using uh, G, A, B, uh, D, E, right? And so if you look at how those chords overlap, well, you start noticing certain things. Well, first of all, there's no, no seventh, so you don't have that uh, um, diminished uh, seventh that, uh, or diminished fifth that propels you uh, from one chord into another, which, which you have in, in uh, mainstay, uh, you know, common practice. Uh, but also that there's there's only uh, essentially one note difference between five and one, and and um, and so so the transition between five and one is a very it's not a jarring experience, and 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 hence the resolution from five to one is not as satisfying because there there's only one note difference, um, and so. Um, so that helps build the sound world then in, in the case of the planes where everything's really steady, which reinforces the imagery that she's painting of this, this plane and, 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 and such. And so, so what I find fascinating then is, is uh, at least on the composition side is, is how I have this feeling, I, pl I play with this idea, I have this feeling, and then uh, at some point, I investigate how it works and understand it's like, oh, well, that's what's going on here. That's why I was getting those emotional feelings I have. And that, that becomes something you file in your head for later. Um, or, or if you're having a particular trouble trying to express something, now you've, you've built uh, another idea that you can draw on um, because, because you've, you've studied it. So, um, so after writing the planes, then I was like, well, what happens if we do something, you know, the same sort of idea, but with a minor mode. So, um, you know, C, D, E flat, um, uh, G, A flat uh, would be, you know, tonic or whatever. And, and out of that came uh, one of my, uh, I forget which piece was next, but that was Wistful Wind, I think might've been uh, um, that piece. Um, but one of the other pieces in the cycle is based around the same sort of ideas, but now expressed in a minor mode. Uh, and of course that, that ends up being a completely different world because there you have minor seconds showing up, whereas in a pentatonic world, you only have major seconds. And, right. and, and that also contributes to the, the sound world and, and, and why um, the music feel, has a certain feel and a certain sound to it. Cool. So I basically found that very, just a, a very, um, a well that uh, was worth going back to uh, many times. Yeah. Uh, very fruit, fruitful uh, approach to, to harmony. All right, well, let's take a moment and listen to a bit of The Plains.
I want to turn next to Hinema Tov, for which you have several voicings on your website. So let's listen to a moment of this new setting of this traditional text. So there are many recordings of Hina Mato, most of them with essentially the same melody or a variant of it. So what were you thinking about as you were creating a new setting for this text? So that was uh, part of the commission. Uh, so I was commissioned by the Gaithersburg uh, Community Choir to uh, write two pieces. One was a, uh, uh, a new arrangement of an existing American composed Christmas carol. And so that led me to write, um, uh, take a um, Billings, uh, a version unspotted and, and uh, uh, write my arrangement of, of that piece. Uh, and, uh, and then the other one was to um, write a new setting of Hine Matov. And so, um, so that was actually the, the, the task there was, was part of the commission. And so for me, it was a, a, a really fun, task getting to explore all the various traditional um you know melodies that people grew up singing you know for it, it, it's uh, you know we uh part of the reason why i love christmas carols is that's you know you you grow up and that's a special time of year and it, it evokes all these emotions um you know from from childhood and so different traditions have you know same sort of thing that evokes these really important emotions about um you know from from growing up and so it was really fun to to find a couple 
couple websites where um, various people had collected, oh, well, here's what I grew up with and, and seeing their version of Hina Metov. And, um, and of course, it's a worldwide phenomenon. So you have all then, you know, the way it gets expressed in different cultures. And so, you know, what I attempted to do was um, uh, do something uh, authentic uh, in, in the sense of, of that was in a similar tradition and similar style to a lot of the um, pieces I heard. So there's a lot of natural harmonic minor being the most predominant, 6-8 being the most predominant uh, time signature. And so the, those kind of ideas uh, were kind of just the starting basis of where I wanted to go. Uh, I, however, also wanted to do kind of a dual thing where I wanted to write a concert piece. I mean, that was what I was being commissioned for. But at the same time, I also wanted to honor the tradition of this is a gathering song. This is, you know, what a group of people get together and sing. And so I approached that by first writing that gathering song that uh, is available for free on my website, you know, that here's a, a version of my Hine Matov that is a gathering song. It's a traditional, let's get together and sing and, 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 and enjoy that. Uh, and then I took that and pretended, okay, now this is a pre-existing thing. Now let's, let's write a choral arrangement of now this um, melody uh, and, and community song and, and turn it into a more traditional choral piece that would be for a concert performance. And, and that was the uh, original version of, of, uh, Hine Metov. And Hine Metov has been one of my more popular uh, pieces. A lot of um, two high schools uh, at least have done uh, um, done it in the Seattle area. So uh, one was Woodenville High School and they did a fabulous job. I actually got to go to that performance and uh, Anna Cordes uh, also uh, performed it. So there's been you know some in interest around, around that and it is accessible to high school choirs. Um, kind of fun and cultural um, thing as well. So. All right. So lastly, let's move to a more recent piece, A Light Exists in Spring, written in 2019. In fact, this is a first for this podcast. We get to premiere the recording of this piece, right? Yes. All right. I know you were using harmonic information, a major second, you said, to represent light in this mm -hmm. piece. So what else can you tell us about this piece and the recording that we're about to hear? So there are a couple interesting things about this piece and particularly about this recording. So the, the, the first you, you touched on is the, the major second. And my use of it here is informed by my study of harmony that I've, I've been engaged in quite seriously for the uh, past 10, 15 years. And study of harmony, I mean, getting down to the physics of how harmonics interact with one another, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but um, one of my recent discoveries, I think I got it, got the name on the, I remember writing the name on the back of uh, a business card from one of the conventions. Uh, someone said, well, you need to listen to Jacob Collier. And I can tell you, yes, you, you need, you who are listening need to listen to Jacob, uh, Jacob Collier. He is uh, such full of youth, youthful energy, but he is at that age where he is, he just has absorbed so much and he has taught himself harmony in a way that I think is, is, is very truthful. 
and and honest and and accurate to what actually is is happening. And one of the things I, I learned from him, uh, where while well, he explained it in just like two sense two sentences, something I've been trying to articulate probably for years is 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 the way um, he expressed it as the Lydian scale and why the Lydian scale sounds so so bright. But essentially, what ends up happening is is it, it relates to how the harmonics uh, relate to one another, and as you get if you're um, as you get further and further into the dominant, things sound brighter and brighter to us. So if you're if you're in the home key of C and you go to G, that's bright. But if you go to D, it's even brighter. And if you go to A, it's even brighter. And and what you're doing in a, something like Lydian scale is you're actually borrowing tones from the bright side of the of the harmonic relationships. Mm. And the reason why that's relevant is. Uh, the the major second C to D is is a borrowing from from you're borrowing the note that's the dominant of the dominant you're you're borrowing that D which is the dominant of G which is the dominant of C and so that inherently uh, is a is a bright sounding sound and so part of the idea of writing a light existence spring was using that major second to represent the light. And to work that in then with the poetry uh, to express what the poet, uh, what Emily Dickinson in this case is, is expressing in her poetry, uh, trying to bring that, um, bring that to light. <laughs> uh, the second thing that's really fascinating then about, about this recording in particular is this recording is actually in pure just intonation. One of the things you can do when of course you have each part recorded separately is you can tweak pitches a little bit. And, and uh, so I did the guide track in a, in a pure, just intonation tuning. So every chord, except for one, um, is as perfectly tuned as it can be. Um, so all the major chords have a pure sweet third and a pure fifth. There are, are no um, uh, tempering of any of those intervals going on throughout the whole piece. Now, in this particular piece, it's highly tonal. And so you don't actually, uh, other than it sounding, quote, sweet, uh, you don't actually notice anything strange going on until perhaps we get to a modulatory section um, towards the middle end of the piece where I'm modulating way into the dominant area, uh, dominant of the dominant sort of, sort of thing. And at that point, you really start noticing, well, that C sharp is not the tuning on the piano. It's, it, and it's not necessarily the tuning that choral singers would normally um, sing um, in, a, in a really good choir. That's a whole separate discussion of, you know, choral singers don't actually sing in just intonation. We're more dynamic because we have a strong sense of what that home initial home key is. And we're, we're always referencing that. And, and so we're, we're doing something slightly more dynamic. So this recording kind of embodies a, a longer term uh, project I've been working on in terms of just intonation and, and experimenting with it and, and trying to realize it. Um, and I do have a couple other pieces I'm working on in the background that are actual written to be performed in just intonation and only just intonation, as opposed to, in this case, borrowing a piece that is a rather traditional piece, but but figuring out, okay, how would this work in just intonation? All right, well, with all that in mind, let's take a listen to this premiere of A Light Exists in Spring. Oh. 
Okay, so Chris, where can my listeners learn more about you? What is your website? My website is frailymusic.com. So that's F-R-A-L-E-Y-M-U-S-I-C-U.com. Uh, and that's the main main way to get a hold of me. My contact information is up there. You can uh, fill out contact form or send me an email. Uh, I am I'm a little bit old school in in terms of uh, I don't have too much of a presence on social media. Yeah. Uh, and, and honestly, right at the moment, I'm trying to avoid Facebook as much as yeah. possible. <laughs> <laughs> Can't blame you there. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining me today. It has been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining me on Movable Dome. Thank you, Steve. This has been very enjoyable. Thank you. My guest today was composer Chris Fraley. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. If you'd like to continue this conversation or share your favorite pieces by Chris Fraley, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Doe Listeners. If you have show or guest suggestions, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>